begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again tonight for the scriptures, for the salvation that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for your grace that you've shown to us on innumerable occasions. And we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the content of this great event of the resurrection and the associated truths uh, that you reveal through that event. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to kind of go back tonight to uh, something we ended with last week, and that was the context of the resurrection. Um, All of these events that we've studied uh, have associated with them certain doctrines or truths. And uh, the resurrection is no exception. So, in thinking about this resurrection, we emphasized last time that the term has come to be used um, for a vague hope. I mean, it's, it's a message of hopefulness, that sort of thing. And what I'm trying to show is that that's not the whole story. And when the resurrection is used that way, it's, it's actually used improperly. Uh, I want to review two passages tonight to show this. Uh, One in John chapter 5, and then we'll touch uh, briefly on the one we did last week in in Acts 17. But here's cases where the resurrection is taught in Scripture, but it's taught within a certain contextual environment. And it's clear that it's not this uh, nice, gooey, hopeful uh, message in these cases. There's hope in it, but the hope is a disciplined hope. It's a holy hope. And in John 5, Jesus is having a real confrontation here at this point in the text with the Jews. And um, it says in verse 18 of John chapter 5, For this cause the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And by the way, verse 18 is an excellent, excellent verse uh, to show that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Um, People uh, who, who doubt this, some of the cults particularly, will say, well, you know... He really never really said that he was God. He's, he's sort of near God, but not really equal to God. Well, here's, here's an interesting verse, because he made himself so equal with God, they were going to kill him. And here are the monotheistic Jews. So you might just remember this verse, John 5:18. It's a useful text to remember when you get in this argument about whether the New Testament, Jesus ever claimed explicitly to be God. Um, But we're not looking at that point right now. Let's follow the the argument now. Here's a confrontation with Jews. And Jesus, therefore, in verse 19, answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. The Father loves the Son, shows him all things that he is doing, and so forth. And that just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges. Now look at verse 22. Here's the prelude to the doctrine of the resurrection. For not even the Father judges anyone, 
but he has given all judgment to the Son. So here we are again. The context of the resurrection is one of ultimate responsibility of man and the final judgment. That's the context that you'll see when you study how the resurrection is discussed in Scripture. Um, And this is how you can separate orthodox teaching about the resurrection from some liberal ghoul where somebody's using the Christian vocabulary and they have no more motive to adhere to the content of Scripture than the man the moon. It just sounds nice to talk at Easter time about the resurrection. You know, the birds and the bees and the flowers and and the resurrection, that kind of thing. Um, The spring is a nice time, but the resurrection isn't just a resurrection to happiness. Let's further on, let's go down further in the text. So verse 22 starts it off, it's, it's judgment is the theme. And in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, and he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That, by the way, verse 22, is another nice verse to remember when you deal with the issue, well, what about other religions that are sincere but don't accept Jesus? Well, I think verse 20, uh, 23 sort of answers that question. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Answer to that question. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you... Now watch... In verse 25, there's a phrase used, and in verse 28, the same phrase looks like it's used, but with a modification. So watch very carefully the text. Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Now, clearly, he's talking about a spiritual death and a spiritual kind of resurrection. So that's fine. Resurrection can be used as a metaphor of regeneration. That's fine. The text does that. But having admitted that point, you can't work backwards and say, because the resurrection is used metaphorically, illustratively of the resurrection, therefore there was no physical resurrection. So you can't work that backwards. A metaphor is a metaphor of a real thing, not of an imaginary thing. You can't have a metaphor of a metaphor. So the resurrection has the genuine physical resurrection, but then there's the metaphorical use of the word. So verse uh, 25 is talking about regeneration at the point of salvation when someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say an hour is coming when the dead shall hear, the dead there, the unregenerate, who hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself, and gave him authority, notice, here's our word judgment again, and gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now you'll notice the title used here. The judgment that is is being handed over to the Son is handed over to the Son because he's both God and man. He's God and therefore is holy and righteous and has the standards of judgment. But he's also man in that he rules the human race. He's the second Adam. He takes Adam's position. And we studied the title, the Son of God and the Son of Man last time. He uses both titles here. Notice verse 25, Son of God. 
Notice, notice verse 27, Son of Man. This is one of those rare passages in Scripture where those two titles happen. But now, in verse 28, if you compare it with verse 25, in verse 25 it says, an hour is coming and now is. And in verse 28 it says, an hour is coming and there is no and now is. So notice that the resurrection, when he uses it metaphorically, he's talking about right now, in the present, verse 25. But when he reverts to speaking about the real resurrection physically, it's an hour coming and it isn't here yet. An hour is coming in which all who are in tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. So the resurrection has two parts. It's not just good news. It's good and evil. It's good news and it's bad news. And the reason it's good news and bad news it harps back to this diagram that we've shown hundreds of times, and that's okay, because that's how we learn, by repetition. And we've emphasized that in the Christian position, good and evil are temporary until the point of judgment. And at the point of judgment, good is eternally and finally and completely separated from evil. There's, not a, there's no, in, no switching back and forth here. The railroad tracks fork. And there's no crossovers from this point on. So that's, that's the moment of eternal doom or eternal bliss. That's the context of the resurrection. So when you hear people endlessly talking about resurrection, you will, you know, now in the next couple of weeks, remember, if you don't see this and get the concept of what's going on here, you're going to be all screwed up when you think about resurrection. Not thinking about it biblically. So here's a major passage, John chapter 5, where Jesus teaches about the resurrection. And in verse 29, it's a, it's, the judgment has happened. That's the fork in the road, right there. So please think about this and protect your mind against some really false stuff that goes on about this resurrection thing. And just to reinforce John 5, let's turn to Acts 17 and think about it. Here's the Apostle Paul. We've already looked at John. He's teaching the same thing, same context, same topic, the resurrection. 1 was to a Jewish audience, the other is to a Greek audience, and in both cases circumstances are identical. Resurrection is this terminating point in history. Now, it's hopeful in that the Christian message, the biblical Christian message, is that good and evil temporarily coexist, not eternally coexist. In the pagan mind, the unbeliever has no separation of good and evil. None. It's forever mixed. You can be reincarnated 8,582 times. But every time you're reincarnated, what are you reincarnated into? Back into a world of good and evil. And that's why in the Orient, the real thinking Orientals, who have thought through their religious position, don't view reincarnation like American people do. American students, particularly, they get into this thing and they think it's cool. 
And they think it's cool because they don't think about it too carefully. That's why they think it's cool. But in the East, people have had centuries to think this through far more carefully than some, you know, little 18-year-old in college campus somewhere. And they have seen, properly so, that uh, reincarnation is not necessarily good. And it's a spinning wheel. And you want to get off the spinning wheel. So you go into nirvana or some denial of your existence, some metaphysical suicide, to, to stop this wheel business, to stop the incarnation. You don't want to be reincarnated. Who wants to be reincarnated 8,000 times into this mess? So there's the difference between Christianity and paganism. And Christianity depends on two critical points. And they're supernatural, they're catastrophic, there's no apologies made here. It's that we have to unambiguously, emphatically, and clearly enunciate that these two points, the fall and the final judgment, are miraculous, they are instantaneous, and they are cosmic. They apply to the whole universe. There was a fall with cosmic results. There is going to be a judgment with cosmic results. And thank God for that, because that brackets evil. Evil is bracketed in space and time, and then in eternity, it's confined. There's an eternal confinement, to, so it doesn't break out again. It's there. So, in Acts 17, when Paul's talking to pagans... He says, um, in verse 30, he says, Therefore, overlooking the times of ignorance, that means all through the history up until the time of the preaching of the gospel, the times of ignorance start with Noah's decay, the, the Sham, Ham, and Japheth, when the nations lose the light of the Noahic Bible, and the times of ignorance come up to the Great Commission when the gospel once again goes forth in a new dispensation into the world to, to, to clarify. So, in verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, that doesn't mean people who reject God don't get judged. It just means that God gave the entire human race at one point universal revelation. And this business about, well, what about those who haven't heard? There's not a people group or a linguistic group that hasn't heard. Everybody has heard. Maybe they haven't heard the advanced features of the gospel, but they certainly heard about God as creator and that their conscience bears witness that they're morally obligated to their, their creator. And they're guilty. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. That's, everybody's heard that before the missionary even comes. So... Here we find the times of ignorance has ended. Now, notice the adverb, now God is declaring to men that all, this is universal, that all everywhere should repent. So there's a universal command to go into every people's group, every linguistic subset of the human race. And there's nothing here about the American Civil Liberties Union uh, has a veto of verse 30. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Notice again, context. What's the context of resurrection? He will judge, there it is, krina, 
He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof by resurrection. So there you have it. John 5, Acts 17. Two major passages. So that's the real biblical context of resurrection. Now, every event that we've studied so far on these Thursday night classes, we've said there's a doctrinal truth associated with them. A lot of doctrinal truths. We don't cover them all, but I just try to take at least maybe one or two basic doctrines to associate with each of these events. So tonight, we're going to open up the truth, the doctrinal area that's associated with the resurrection. The resurrection is the event, and the truth that's associated with it is glorification. We want to talk, spend this time, we we will not meet next week. It will be the week after that, and we'll have probably only about two more sessions, and we'll finish out with this, the glorification, sort of a fitting end to this, this part um, five. The Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the probably uh, most theologically consistent creedal statements, not that we'd agree with everything in its totality, but it has a lot of good theology in it, um, said that the chief end of man is to, anybody remember if you're Presbyterian, to glorify God and the interesting thing is, and enjoy Him forever. God is, you know, this is, these are these mundane, puritanical people that wrote the Westminster Confession. And isn't it interesting that they talked, spoke of joy? And the caricature you get all the time is that they were sober people and they walked around with a big, long expression on their face. Um, that was because they took life seriously. And it was interpreted as heaviness. It really wasn't heaviness. If the Puritan looked heavy on the outside, he had joy on the inside. Today, the pagan has a lot of weight on the inside, and he just has a superficial veneer of ha-ha-ha on the outside. It's exactly reversed. So, here, glorification is the final purpose of history. And this marks a difference between what we call dispensational theology and covenant theology. Because most, uh, flowing out of the Reformation, there was such a profound interest in the uh, redemption, in the atonement, in what Christ did on the cross, and how we receive it by faith, and justification by faith, that there was a fixation on redemption. And so, you'll find a lot of Reformed people really emphasize that it's redemption that is the center of action. That's the final result of history. But that's not really true because angels are never redeemed. What's the purpose of history for for that portion of the creation? can't be redemption. There is no redemption. So... The, the, the purpose of history includes redemption. But redemption is only part of this. Glorification is the bigger envelope that contains everything else. So the ultimate aim and purpose of history is glorification. Let's watch what that means practically by turning to Revelation chapter 4.
This is the biblical philosophy of everything, the, uh, or the teleology, the purpose behind history. People always want to seek a purpose, because if history does not have a purpose, if the whole doesn't have a purpose, the parts can't. So it's not just an academic exercise to think about the purpose of history. Because what you're really saying is, I just want purpose in my life. And if, if this whole universe has no purpose, then my life has no purpose. can uh, It amazes me, back when Carl Sagan was doing his Cosmos, uh, as I said many times, if you really want to do I, I had the page number back three or four years ago when I first quoted this. But when you read his book, you can get in the library, Cosmos, um, from which the TV series was made, or I think the book was made in the TV series or something. But anyway, uh, I picked that up and I was looking through it because I wanted to see, here is a very thoughtful uh, philosophic evolutionist and a, a tremendous pagan, uh, really a nice, committed pagan. Um, a nice teacher, committed to his students, a very clear teacher, very skillful teacher, um, very well liked, and so very had a lot of charisma. But what you want to see is where does Sagan go finally? What's the final teleology? What's the final purpose of the whole universe? And on, on whatever the page number was, which I forgot, hundred and something, he says, he says. The idea of the universe slowly dying a cold death, a thermodynamic cold death, where all the energy finally just gets dissipated and it just becomes a cold piece of matter. He says, that may sound a little depressing, but it's not going to happen for billions of years. So in the meantime, we can do good works. Now, does that answer the question? That's not an answer to the question. What's the purpose of it all? A cold death. That means there's no purpose whatsoever. So if that's the ultimate end of everything, then what, what's the motivation to do good works now? If it doesn't count, if there's no carryover, if it doesn't finally matter, then it doesn't matter. So in Scripture, we're coming down to a very serious point in the resurrection because it introduces that eternal state. And that eternal state, the new creation is formed out of the previous universe. I mean, remember the Q&A last week? It was Debbie was asking about what's the relationship between the resurrected body and the natural body. Now, this is a specific thing, so let's look at that for a minute. Here's the resurrection body. Visualize the Lord Jesus, because that's the only resurrection body we have around to look at. Here, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, what's the connection between Jesus Christ's risen body and his natural body? What's the connection? Are they connected? Well, yes, they are, because what happened to Jesus' natural body at the point of the resurrection? Disappeared. When they went into the tomb, they saw an empty linen. There was no body there. There's no skeleton. There's no flesh. There's no, not even his clothes, except that outer garment. So, the resurrection body replaced the natural body. The natural body was no more. So in this new sta state of existence, it, whatever the body is in the resurrection body, we'd like to know more about it, but we'll find out one day. 
that resurrection body corresponds in eternity to our existing body. There is a link between them. There is a correspondence. And in Jesus' case, there were scars that were inflicted on which of his bodies? Resurrection body or natural body? They were inflicted on his natural body. Were those scars carried over to his resurrection body? Yes, they were. Was his Jewishness carried over into his resurrection body? Yeah. Are racial characteristics, racial in the modern sense, not racial scripturally, because there is only one human race, um, are racial characteristics carried over in the resurrection body? Yes, they are. Book of Revelation. Every race, every nation shall worship before God. Now see, there's a powerful philosophy in this, and it's sad that the conservative church in America and, and in South Africa and other places never got, never thought this through. They had the biblical basis to neutralize the poison and toxin of racism, but they never seemed to, they never caught on, never seemed to catch that racial characteristics are part of God's design, and. There's no one race that is a complete picture of humanity. The white race is not the complete picture of humanity. The black race is not the complete picture of humanity. The red races are not the complete pictures of humanity, nor the yellow races. All four of those groups, red and yellow, black and white, like the little hymn says, it takes them all to make a composite and as I said, I still haven't been able to find, and I've had my son searching for this for years, but I'm sure I wasn't dreaming. But years ago, on the cover of Time magazine, they had an artist who did one of the most amazing works I've ever seen. Time magazine commissioned one of their illustrators to try to put Eve on the cover of Time. And the artist very skillfully did a computer composite where he took women of different races and he combined their facial structures in this picture. And what he came up with was the most intriguing woman you've ever seen. Amazing. Just, it was, you know, in art, you, you go to the Mona Lisa and she has this expression on her mouth. And the, the, the intriguing question is, is she smiling at you or, or isn't she? And, and it's, you know, you can sit there and debate because sometimes, you know, is she really just smiling or what? Well, in this picture of Eve, you look at her and she's a stunning woman. But you wonder, well, what's, what race is she? She's not mine, but she's not really black, and she's not really Chinese, but there's just this haunting image of this woman. It was a fantastic thing, and I, if any of you are around CD-ROMs or libraries, it has got to be in the 70s or 80s that this happened. With time. In fact, it can't be in the 80s. When did the pre-session It well, anyway, I've been looking for it. If you ever find it... Did you find it? Oh, wonderful. Oh, great. Because that is a classic. And a lot of thought went into that, and I think it behooves us to look, consider that. Because what that artist tried to do was to bring all the potential separate... The, the species, all the specifications that specialized biologies 
that we all see today, and we call them the race or that race or this race, and he tried to bring it back to the fountainhead of what must it look like. And I think he did an excellent job. But in eternity, the glorification principle argues that God is going to be glorified through what he has created and what he has done in his creation. So, in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, there are two classic uh, passages of songs that are sung. And these are sung before the throne of God. And what we want to look at tonight is familiar to all of you because there's some hymns today that use these words. But what we want to ask ourselves as we look at these two songs tonight is, what is the logic in them? Let's ask ourselves, what does the song lyrics command us to do and why? Um, Verse 11 of chapter 4, book of Revelation. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For, now here's the purpose, here's the reason for the lyric, for for that uh, statement in the hymn. Because you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. It doesn't say natural law. It doesn't say E equals MC squared. What does it say? That causes the universe to hold together. The will of God. Remember that passage in Hebrews 11? By your word, what we see has come about not from the things which we can touch, taste, or feel, but comes about from things that we can't touch, taste, or feel. The word of God in his head. He expresses it. So, it's important that in verse 11, the careful logic behind this hymn is not just that God created, but that he creates and he sustains... And it's all things, including Satan and evil things. Notice this, because this comes to terms with this good evil issue. All things, of course they weren't evil when he created them, but the point still is, he created all things, including Satan, and because of his will, they existed. It's God's will, and he is thanked eternally for this. So part of the glorification comes about through the revelation in creation. Two creatures. So the revelation is in creation, and it's to the creatures inside that creation. Well, let's go to chapter 5, and we'll see how this advances And verse 9 of Revelation chapter 5 says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom. Notice it doesn't say four kingdoms for four races. A kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. 
What is the motive of the praise in verse 10? It's redemption. So revelation in creation to the creatures, and it's also revelation in his redemptive acts of history. That's a cause for praise. If you want to see the motif, look at the Psalms. Over and over and over again, the psalmists exalt God because of his work in their lives. Now let's back up a bit and ask a question. Let's go kind of backwards to these hymns. These hymns are in the last book of Scripture, Revelation, right? How come they're not in the first book of Scripture? Why could not verse 9 of Revelation 5 be sung in Eden? Because it hadn't happened yet. The praise is a response to God's historic work. History is His story. And so the praise is a result of certain historical events and acts that have happened. So what we read in the last book of the Bible has to be at the last book of the Bible. Because it has to be after all these things have transpired. You can't praise God for something He hasn't done. You can say he's worthy, he's capable of doing that, but you can't praise him for it because it hasn't happened yet. So the thing to remember about glorification is that it is progressive throughout history. God is progressively glorified. At each step in history, man learns more and more and more and more and more about God. It's a progress until a point is reached at the end of history when apparently God is finished with work as we know it. Now what he's going to do in the eternal state, that's a whole other story. But for this history, for this cosmos, for this universe, for this story that we're part of, he's, he's going to finish it. The last chapter of the book will be done. And it will be done when he's figured out that we've seen enough of him. He will have done enough work that we will be capable of singing from our hearts these hymns. And we can't sing these hymns from our hearts by faith, trying to work it up, Operation Bootstrap. It doesn't come that way. These only can naturally flow out of our hearts when we have experienced what God has done in our lives and other people's lives and looking at history. And that's why we have the biblical record. Why is this book full of history? You ever stop to think about that? The first historians in the human race are right here. It's not what you learn in secular school that Herodotus and the Greeks started writing history. No, no. This book was written centuries before the Greeks and it's about history. And the motive behind this was to record whose acts. It was to record God's acts. That was the motive originally for history. And that is why whenever the Bible is cut off and excluded from the educational process because of the ACLU or somebody, that's the doom for teaching history. Because to take God out of history, why should I bother with it? 
Why bother? There's no coherent plan left once you've excluded God from it. So therefore, there's no motivation. People don't want to learn it anymore. And so we replace history with courses on sex education or something. So glorification is our doctrine. And on page 111 of the notes, we go through parts of this doctrine. And the part that I'm working through now is on page 111 and 112. The glorification of God. And I want to go back to Genesis, chapter 4. And we're just going to take a quick spin through the Bible. And we want to show you how the human race has gradually learned more and more about God and has responded. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, if you look up in a concordance, you'll find that this is the first time in history worship is mentioned, which is kind of interesting. You know, what were Adam and Eve doing? Because it says in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 4, And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So worship did not start with Adam and Eve. It started later. Corporate worship. So it must be that it started after the fall. It's after God started preaching the gospel, the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Promise. After they experienced the tragedy of a murder in their family after they experienced the fallout of a, quote, dysfunctional family, this side of the fall. And then men began to worship the Lord. You see, it takes us time to appreciate God. And worship has to be an appreciation for Him. And that's why those of us who are concerned today are worried about the inroads of mysticism in the church. We're worried about the hoopla that passes for worship of God because we're not saying that people can't have their own ways of worship. What we're saying, though, is if it's not theocentric, if it's just kind of like a musical orgy that makes me feeling good, it pumps my emotions, that is not worship of God. I'm sorry. Adam and Eve could have had a boombox in Eden, but that wouldn't have been worship. The worship started after they had had a chance to reflect on God's actions. Then, after heart reflection, then they begin to appreciate Him and worship Him. If you tie the word appreciate to the word worship, you'll get it a more biblically correct view of what goes on here. All right, let's move forward to the next verse, Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. These are picked out just so you'll see that it took centuries of God's working to teach us. Or, said another way, that history is, in a profound way, pedagogical. From Genesis chapter 4 to Exodus chapter 6, think how much history has gone on. Look at the framework here. Creation has happened. The fall has happened. The flood has happened. All these chaotic events have gone on. And the 
covenant with Noah, the beginning of the next civilization has happened. Then we come on to the call of Abraham, 2000 B.C. That's happened. Then we get down, and now we're at the Exodus. We're right in just about at the Exodus. Look at all the events that have happened. Now in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God says to Moses, as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, biblical critics have a big feast day about this because obviously the word Yahweh occurs before this. And so they say, well, see, contradiction in the scriptures. Well, no, it's not a contradiction in the scriptures. But for, first of all, let's just review a minute. What is this word that's translated capital L, capital R, O, R, D, usually capitalized in your English translations, just to let you know, this is not the same word as this. Those are two different words. This word is a word which is the proper name of God. This word is a title, not a name. The proper word for God, no one knows because the Jewish people lost the pronunciation of it. In Hebrew, it's that. It's called the tetragrammaton, tetra, four. The four letters. Y-H-W-H. And scholars have big debates over what does this word mean. It, it seems that the best explanation for it is it's related to the verb to be. The verb to be is, the stem is that in Hebrew. So, it's more than I am. The idea is, I am with you. I am the one who is with you. That, in that sense, the I am. Now, does that ring a bell about something that Jesus said he was? See, in the, in the text, you remember that scene as, as the uh, police came to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? And if you don't catch this name, Yahweh, you don't see what happens. What John puts in that little text, here these guys come, they're all armed, they're going to take away you know, this one Jewish carpenter, and they get the whole police force out. And, of course, in behalf of them, they were worried about a riot. So that's why they had overwhelming force applied to the point. So they came up, and Jesus just says, I am. And they all fall backwards. Well, it sounds like you know, something's wrong with the text here. What's going on? Why, why all this uh, experience, like a big flashbang thing kind of thing going on here? It's because at the point that Jesus uttered that, he was actually uttering his own essence. Remember, he's God and man. And he said, I am the one who I am. He's saying the same thing to Moses in the burning bush. This is a revelation of him. So, what it, so if, we, if we say that the meaning equals, I am uh, the one who is with you. That name was the one that he gave when Moses asked him, well, who shall I say, Lord, that sent me? Tell them that I am sent you. And as God speaks that word, the bush is sitting there in an inferno, but it's not consumed. And many scholars believe that that is a picture of Israel. Israel was in Egypt. 
under intense persecution, but she was never going to be exterminated. The Jews will never be exterminated. You can burn the bush all you want to burn, but it never goes away because God is the one who is with them. So he got that name. Now, if that's the meaning of it, and it's the burning bush and Israel's experience in Egypt that's the background of that name, does Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, make sense now? God could have used that name before, but he says, I did not make myself known to them with that name. How could God, if this is the meaning of the name, how could they appreciate the meaning of the name had the Exodus not happened? Here this Jewish community was, came out of one family, in, a, in the loins of the superpower on earth that was hell-bent on genocide, a genocidal destruction of the Jewish population. And they survived. They not only survived, they're the only people in the ancient world to break loose and get their freedom without fighting for it. I mean, it was rare enough, if, if, it's, if there's ever, and I'm not that familiar with ancient history, uh, in that portion of time, if there ever was a group of people that got their freedom from a superpower, that would have been one thing. But to get their freedom from a superpower without even firing a shot, that's quite another thing. And that's what the Jewish people did. Now, that's the experience. Now they can say, Lord, you are the one who is with us. They could have said the words before, but the words wouldn't carry any content. So here's the progress. We've seen Genesis 4, men began to publicly worship the Lord. In Exodus chapter 6, the primary name of God is given. Now let's come to John 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. These verses are, again, what are we doing? We're just simply showing progress in Revelation. authority over all man. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, in that sense of the use of the word eternal life, in verse 3, could it be said that unbelievers have eternal life? No. Could it be said that in, in a technical sense, Abraham was regenerated and so on. But the life eternal, that they may know God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent in time past. In other words, this side of the Incarnation. There's a progress here. Old Testament saints couldn't even say this. This is something that is clarified on this side of the Incarnation. There is a progress. Verse 8, he talks about the words which you gave me. I've given to them. The words that he gave Jesus, they weren't available before Jesus came to give them. So, the whole New Testament is something new. And verse 14 says, the world has hated them. They are not of the world, even though I am not of the world. And I'm not praying for the world in this context. So, John 17 represents the discussion of the Lord Jesus about the progress in Revelation. Now you are even better known, God. Then we come to a passage like Ephesians 3. 
So if we turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, this is after the church gets started, the day of Pentecost, and we have this new thing called the church, where Jews and Gentiles are equal. And in in Exodus, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, part of the being and the existence of the church has nothing to do with us. It says, God is doing a work in the church in order that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by means of the church to whom? Believers? No. Look who the object of the verb is there. Object of the preposition. To the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. Those are angels. So, the angels then didn't know certain things about God until the church happened in history. It took Pentecost, as late as Pentecost, over the century before the angels saw some more stuff going on. So, could the angels before Pentecost have praised God like they can after Pentecost? No, because now they know more about Him. They appreciate Him more deeply. So, again, what is our point? The point is that the doctrine of glorification means that God is progressively known through history at each point in His revelation. It's a growing body of appreciation for His work. Now, that appreciation is not voluntarily accepted in order to be effective. And this is a, this, and what I mean by that is that we, so far we talked about believers responding to God's revelation. But the Bible doesn't leave it there. The Bible says that God is also glorified through unbelievers and in unbelievers. Turn to Isaiah 45, verse 23. Here in the Old Testament is a passage, you'll be more familiar with it from Philippians, but I'd rather turn to Isaiah 45 because it puts it back in its original context. Again, we read it, we get overly familiar with it in, in Philippians. But let's look at Isaiah 45, 23. In Isaiah 45, 23, he says, let me get the right chapter here. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and it will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. Paul picks that up in Philippians and points out that at the name of Jesus... Remember we dealt with this when we deal with the deity of Jesus? And I said one of the proofs of the deity of Jesus is you can take all these passages out of the Old Testament that talk about Yahweh, and in the New Testament, lo and behold, they're quoted verbatim, and now they're applied to Jesus. Yahweh, Jesus. Now, if that's not calling God, Jesus, God, I don't know what he is. 
Philippians takes this passage and applies it and, and, and removes the name Yahweh and replaces it with Yesu. So turn to Philippians 2, verse 9, and watch what Paul does with it. Powerful, powerful evidence of the exalted position of Jesus. And this is why the Jews threw rocks. Philippians 2, verse 10. Do you see a flagrant substitution of Jesus in place of Yahweh? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The implication is that when good is removed from evil, and Satan, his hordes, as well as unbelievers who have finally gone into eternity unbelieving, will be forced to acknowledge who God is over against their heart which rebels. It's an awful position to be in because what that means is they have to constantly be aware that they made the ultimate mistake. When you talk about rubbing your nose in it, forever and ever and ever. This is a horrible thing to think about. To have to eternally be reminded that you screwed up with no hope of being saved from that, being delivered from that. What an awful thing. Now, we we experience it as shame. But the, the nice thing about the gospel is it heals the shame. But what if there was no gospel? And what if you couldn't touch it? You couldn't receive God's grace and you just sat there wallowing in your own shame. But even that is glorifying God because it says, in the final analysis, He is who He is and He's holy and I'm not. That's the sobering side of glorification. So we're not not little naive sentimentalists here when we articulate this doctrine of glorification. God is glorified. Glorification. He is glorified as to who He is. And we respond to that through His acts of history. His creation and His acts of history. Psalm 139 is another passage. It says He's he's known everywhere in the universe. And this passage, which we've just studied tonight in Philippians 2 and Isaiah, shows that every creature, Paul applies it to every creature. Now let's turn in conclusion to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. These two chapters are the only chapters that deal specifically with the eternal state and the new universe. And in Revelation 21.1, here's the resurrection of the universe. Now, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the tomb. We've talked about the resurrection of individual believers. But in Revelation 21.1, we have a resurrection of the whole cosmos. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no more sea. That's always bothered me. I always like to watch the ocean waves. And there's a reason, I guess, why there's not going to be a sea in the new universe. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out. I heard a loud voice from the throne. And here, remember the theme of God? God is Emmanuel. His ultimate place is with man on planet Earth, not Mars, not Venus, not a star ten light years away, but this, this planet. The tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no longer any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Now, what that verse is saying is what we have said on this diagram with the good and evil, that it will be separated, and once it's fixed, it won't be liable to another, um, another disaster, another fall. So we're talking about this, this state here. God is good forever and ever, and it's talking about, right at this point, it's talking about part of that eternal state, it's talking about the good. And he who sits on the throne said, I'm making all things new. It is done. History is done, that mortal period. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water without cost. Now drink freely of the eternal life. One of the greatest verses on grace in the entire scripture. I don't want you to try to pay for it, God says. You drink freely. I offer you a drink. And all it takes is a belief, act of belief and receive it like you do water. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the unbombable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so he goes on with a vision of Jerusalem. And then in the, the end of this chapter, notice verse 22 of chapter 21, uh, verse 22 there. I saw no temple in it. This is for God, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God is illuminated, its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light. The kings of the earth shall bring glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. Thinking of Eden, when Eden was closed. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's that permanent exclusion that's tied in with this whole idea of the resurrection. The resurrection is the first brick in this house, the new house. That's the significance of Jesus' resurrection. It's the first brick among many other bricks yet to be made that will together be this new heavens and this new earth. Then it says in verse 11 of the next chapter, chapter 22, the permanent bifurcation of good and evil. Notice in verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. So the invitation is to declare your allegiance because in eternity I'm going to separate it. Now, 
if you look in the diagram, we'll amplify this more next week, um, not next week, two weeks from now, page 113 up in the top of the notes. This is the picture that I'm trying to get to summarize what we're doing here. Kind of a new, new diagram. And we're not going to... I just introduced this to you so you'll think about this as you, you read the notes um, on the glorification of man. Uh, this has an implication that we'll take up next year when we talk about the Christian life. But notice the, the pathway. First you have creation. Then you have the fall. Then you have this period of mortal history. And then immortal history begins with a resurrection. And once that begins, there's no changeover. There's, no, there's two railroads parallel to each other, but no cross tracks. There is a resurrection unto eternal life and a resurrection unto damnation. So, this is going to, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Revelation. Um, I don't think we'll have time for discussion tonight. I just got in on one trip and I've got to go on another one. So, if two weeks from now, uh, if you'll um, bring these notes. And look at just Revelation 21, 22. See if you can kind of just soak in it a little bit. That'll help. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you have provided for an answer to the vanity of our world. As we look out in our lives and we see uh, the suffering, the sorrow, the pain, the heartaches. And then we realize that only, only the promise of the word for an eternal division of good and evil, the hope that we have through your word, that you have created the universe, you created it very good, it was not evil to begin with, and it shall not be evil in the eternal future. We thank you that we, no matter how depressed we may become or how afflicted we may become with the forces of evil around us and in us, that that evil is bracketed and it is doomed. It is not going to be part of our eternal existence. We thank you then the Lord Jesus Christ and his great role in history. And we ask that your Holy Spirit give us a spirit of appreciation and worship of what you have done. May we be students of this, this book that we have in front of us that outlines all of history, gives us the important highlights, tells us the details that we need to know in order that we may be equipped unto every good work. In Christ's name, amen.